series on generosity. And we've said right since the start of this series that gospel-driven generosity is about more than just money. The gospel should transform our whole lives. We've heard that already in this series that it should transform our approach to hospitality in how we open our homes and our lives to others. It should transform our relationships as we obey Jesus' command to forgive those who've wronged us. And we'll look at more areas of life as this series goes on. But if we are to be truly generous people, then we have to talk about money. You'll probably notice on the screen that this is Generosity and Wealth Part 1. So that means there is another part coming. And I know because I've sat where you're sitting that actually this subject can be, it can immediately invoke all kinds of reactions. It's not necessarily an easy thing to talk about. But we're spending time talking about money because Jesus spent a lot of time talking about money. And I think the reason he did that was because he knew the particular power that money has to grab our hearts and to rob us of the freedom that God wants for us. And also because of what is possible with generous, joyful giving. Now, of course, we'll, we'll all be in different places with this. One of the things I love about our church family is our diversity. So we're diverse in terms of ethnicity. There's many different nations and cultures represented in this room. We're also diverse in terms of age. There are people here at different ages and, and different stages of life. And we're also increasingly diverse socially. And that means that when it comes to personal wealth, there are people in this room who are comparatively well-off and people with comparatively little. There'll also be cultural differences in terms of how we view money. But I'm convinced that what we're talking about this week and next goes beyond lines of culture and economic status. This is for all of us who want to follow Jesus. So in a moment, as Abby said, we're going to look at a story from Luke's Gospel where Jesus directly challenges someone about wealth. But before we do, I want to be clear up front that I am on my own personal journey with this. My main prayer, as I've been thinking through what to say this morning, has been, Father, help. But also, Father, help me to speak with integrity into this subject. I am the son of two parents who've always been wonderfully wise with their money. My dad has worked in finance all his life. And I found out fairly recently that my own bank account was set up on the day I was born. So I like to think of them there at the hospital. And my dad saying to my mum, it looks like you've got this. I'm going to go and sort out his finances. <laughs> I've had seasons in my life where I've had not very much money at all and seasons where things have been a bit more comfortable. I've never known what it is to go without to completely and to not know where my next meal will come from. Maybe some of you have been in that position or are in that position right now. But I do want to be a good steward of the money that I have and also all the more generous, it, generous with my finances. And I don't find that easy. Jesus comes to all of us this morning knowing exactly where we are, knowing what we struggle with and wanting the very best for us. So let's look at this passage together. We're in Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. If you have a Bible, I do want to encourage you to open it to that passage. We're going to stay largely in that passage in Luke 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, no worries, the words will be on the screen behind me. So it says this, Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, so a certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. 
You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your presence. I thank you that you're here with us right now. We're your people, you're our Father, and you love us. And I thank you that you understand us, you know where we're at, uh, you know our hearts. And, and Lord, I pray that in this time, as we, as we look at this passage and unpack it, Lord, we would understand you better. We'd, we'd grow in our knowledge of who you are and of your plans and your purposes for our lives. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You see this a lot in the Gospels, that Jesus has an encounter with an individual and then he uses it as a wider teaching opportunity to teach the disciples who were with him back then, but also to teach us today what it looks like to follow him. So we're going to look at this encounter and at Jesus' teaching, and I want us to focus just on two simple things, the danger of money and the joy of generosity. The danger of money and the joy of generosity. So first of all, the danger of money. This encounter between Jesus and this man appears in three of the Gospels. It appears in Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, and here in Luke 18. And from putting those three accounts together, we know a few things about this man who meets with Jesus. We know that he is a ruler. So commentators think that because of the kind of question that he asked Jesus, it's unlikely that he was a Roman. It's more likely he was a Jewish official of some sort with a level of authority, perhaps a leader at a local synagogue. From Matthew's Gospel, we learn that he's young. He's probably in his 20s or early 30s. And we know from all three accounts that he is rich. And not just rich, but very rich. This guy has money. Each Gospel writer says that he has great wealth. And he comes up to Jesus and he asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a great question, isn't it? And it seems like he was genuine. Mark's gospel says that this man ran to Jesus and fell on his knees before him. He's searching. And from what we know of this man, by the world standards, he's doing pretty well. But there's something in him that longs for more. Maybe you felt like that. And it seems like it's an open door for Jesus to share the gospel and for this man to be saved. But what does Jesus do? Well, let's look at Jesus' response. First of all, he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus isn't denying his divinity here. He's not saying that he is not God. 
What he's doing is he's causing this man to properly consider what he's saying and the way he categorizes things and people to think about what true goodness really means. And then Jesus starts talking about the law. He says, if you want to inherit eternal life, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, honor your father and mother. And it seems a really strange response. It's almost like Jesus has forgotten the gospel. In the passage right before this in Luke's gospel, small children are being brought to Jesus. And Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never receive it. In other words, the way to be saved is to come helpless and empty-handed and totally reliant on God. That is the gospel. We receive it as a gift, not through works. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. In just a few short words, he gets skillfully and insightfully to the depths of this man's heart and to the root of his real problem. I wonder, have you ever watched, maybe on a TV documentary, a surgeon operating on someone? It's so precise, it requires so much knowledge, and you think, how do you know which bits to cut and which bits to leave? What Jesus is doing here is a bit like that. This is open heart surgery. Jesus knows this young man's heart, and so he knows how to deal with him. He knows where his hopes and his confidence lie. Because notice, when Jesus lists the commandments, he doesn't list all of them. He lists the ones about our relationships with others, but not the ones about our relationship with God. In other words, he's saying that if you're going to try to base your salvation on your works, if you're going to try to work your way into heaven, here's what you have to do. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honour your mum and dad, oh, and one more thing, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. See, for all this man's good works, Jesus knows, and he shows it with his questioning, that this man hasn't come close to obeying the very first commandment, that you should have no other gods before me. What Jesus knows about this young man is that his God is his money. If we're not careful, money, wealth, and possessions can become the main things in our life, and they can consume us. So in the story, The Lord of the Rings, there's a creature called Gollum. He's this ugly, sneaky little creature. And, and Tolkien describes him as dark as darkness, except for two big, round, pale eyes in his thin face. And he wasn't always that way. He didn't start like that, but he found this shiny ring, what he called his precious. And over time, as he lived in the depths on his own, looking at that ring and protecting it and loving that ring, in its power, it twisted and corrupted him. It consumed him. And wealth can do that. For some people, money becomes an idol in its own right. The more we have, the more we want. And for others, it can pay for the idols in our lives. It enables us to go after the better home and the better car, to keep on inflating our lifestyle. That is the power that it has. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you ever notice the more stuff we have, the more worries we can have? We can buy a nice car and we spend our time worrying that it will get scratched. See, one of the dangers of wealth is that we can become so focused on earthly things that we're no longer thinking about eternal things. And so Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
And then he uses this illustration. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And some of you will have heard teaching on this that almost gives us a bit of a get out. This idea that there was a small gate in one of the walls in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle. The idea being that, yes, it's hard for a camel to enter a small gate, but if it can just stoop down low enough, if it it can humble itself, then it could maybe get through. And that teaching, I think, doesn't hold up for a couple of reasons. First, there doesn't seem to be any evidence at all of this gate. And second, later in this very same text, Jesus explains what he means. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, his illustration is an analogy of impossibility. Jesus is saying, picture a camel. Now, a camel was the the largest animal that would have been known about in that context. And then he says, now picture the the tiny eye of a needle. Now in your head, try squeezing that camel through the hole. It just cannot be done. That is impossible. See, the problem with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is it's all about what I can do. And we know, don't we, that that when we have money, it enables us to do lots of things. Money opens doors. It enables us to eat the food that we want to eat. Maybe to eat in nice restaurants, to buy the clothes that we want to buy, to go on holiday to nice places, to say yes to things that we'd have to say no to if we didn't have money. Money can open the door to all kinds of things, but it cannot open the door to eternal life. There is nothing that we can do to earn it. And in fact, money can blind us to our very need for salvation. Because why do I need Jesus when I have so much already? And for Christians, our wealth can be the thing that stops us from growing in our faith. We can become so reliant on our own money and our own wealth, our own possessions, that we don't lean on God enough, we don't pray enough, and we don't grow in our faith. Money can make a helpful servant. It makes a terrible God. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is a challenging teaching. So what do we do with this teaching? Well, the temptation, of course, is to assume that this is all somebody else's problem. Maybe even now you're thinking, I hope those rich people over there are listening to this. If that's you, I'd say, let's be really, really careful with this. Actually, the love of money isn't just a problem for those who have lots of it. Even when we have very little, we can spend our lives wanting more. And actually, though there are, there are vast differences in this room in terms of personal wealth, by the world's standards, most of us will be considered rich. To make it into the, the richest 1% of people globally, you need to be earning around £30,000 a year. So what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that all of us need to sell all we have and give it to the poor? Well, no, because we see throughout the Bible there are people in the kingdom with lots of money. In the very next chapter of Luke's Gospel is the story of Zacchaeus. And when Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, he gives back to people four times what he owes them. But Jesus never asks him to give away everything. The point is, Jesus deals with each of us uniquely. We had a prophetic word for our church a few years ago that God is bringing to our church a convergence of rich and poor in order to experience the truth and life of God. That we would see an influx of people coming to kings from different sides of society and encountering God together. Do you know, we need wealthy people in the church. 
Praise God for people who have the gifting and the skills and the connections to make money. The church needs entrepreneurs and money makers. But Jesus is saying we must all have our eyes open to the power that money can have over us and our ears open to what God is saying to us as individuals. So the question really is, what is Jesus saying to you personally about money? Where is he challenging you? I love the detail in Mark's gospel account of this story. You don't don't see it here in Luke's gospel, but in Mark's version it says, Jesus looked at this young man and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. See, Jesus is not treating this man harshly, as challenging as it looks. This is Jesus being, as ever, incredibly kind. See, the key to understanding this passage and to understanding Jesus' teaching on wealth and generosity is this. He doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. This is a discipleship issue. If we think that Jesus wants something from us, then even when we give, we'll do it out of obligation and duty. But Jesus wants our heart. Jesus wants, for each of us, a lifetime of freedom and generosity. Do you believe that? That's what he wants for you. He wants a freedom of life and a life of freedom and generosity. And so his heart is always to set us free from the things that take hold of us. Wherever we're at, however much we have, he is longing to bring life-changing freedom. There are dangers with money, but there is joy in generosity. I want you to think, just for a moment, who is the most generous person or the most generous people that you know? Just think about that for a moment. People who are generous with their money and their time and their lives, what are they like, those people? What words would you use to describe them? See, my guess is that when you think of truly generous people, you think of people who are happy, who are joy-filled. I know I do. In fact, I'm not sure I can think of a truly generous person who is unhappy. The most generous people I know are not necessarily the people with the most money. They don't necessarily have the biggest house on the street, but they are incredibly generous with what they have, and they are full of joy. And they're like that because they have a deep understanding of the riches and the blessing that they already have in Jesus. See, we can get very confused in our understanding of what true blessing is. Those who heard Jesus' teaching were confused. It says in the passage that those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? See, they're shocked. And the reason they're shocked is that they equated money and wealth with the blessing of God. And we have to be really careful with this. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. God does bless us and provide for us. But some of the most blessed people I know aren't necessarily people who have a lot materially, but they are blessed spiritually. Jesus says to that rich young ruler, one thing you lack. But what does David write in Psalm 23? Just, Just let the words of Psalm 23 minister to you. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love that. It's just this picture of an overflow and the presence of God, the goodness and the love of the Lord. That is true blessing. The assurance that in Jesus we have everything we need. God wants us to live in the knowledge of how he has blessed us. We lack nothing. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. See, sometimes the thing that holds us back from living a truly generous life is this fear of lack. It's a spirit of poverty that leads us to doubt the faithfulness and the provision of God. And you know, it's really hard because, let's be honest, there's lots to be worried about. The times that we're living in are not easy. The world is constantly preaching us a message of fear. The cost of living is rocketing. House prices are falling. We're going into winter, and that means higher heating costs. But in all of this, will we trust in the goodness of God? Do you have a personal confidence in God as your provider? And will you follow his call to be generous with however much or however little he has given you? That is faith. And I'm not talking about giving beyond what we have and putting ourselves in debt. I'm not talking about being unwise and foolish with our finances. But what is foolishness? What is true wisdom? The Bible says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we are, of course, to be good stewards of the money that God has given us. But is there a danger that wise stewardship can sometimes become an excuse for not giving more extravagantly? Does our fear of lack ever prevent us from being truly generous? And when we do give, do we do, we do it out of duty and obligation or out of joy? Let me give a recent example from my own life, just to prove that I haven't nailed this, that there's still plenty of work for God to do in, in my heart. So my wife, Alice, and I, we give together proportionately to the church each month out of what we earn. We, we find it really helpful to do that on the first day of every month before it's all gone. Um, and last week, Alice came home and she said that she'd been given a pay rise. Well, not, not a huge pay rise, just a small pay rise. And I thought, great, we could really, really do with that extra money. But here's where my heart went next. I thought, oh no, we're going to have to increase our giving. <laughs> and I, do you know, I, I heard it in myself and I thought that's duty, that's obligation. See, yes, my mind went to giving more and it perhaps wouldn't have done that years ago, but it wasn't out of joy, it was out of duty. And I'm a leader in the church, I'm preaching on this today. When it comes to money, growing in generosity means going from that sense of giving out of duty to giving out of joy. From thinking, oh, how much do I have to give? What percentage can I get away with giving? To thinking, wow, how much can I give away? Peter said to Jesus, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Now, now nowhere does Jesus promise that he'll make you rich. But he does promise that as you give, as you make sacrifices for the kingdom, that you will be blessed. And maybe Jesus isn't asking you to give away everything you have, but what is he asking you to do? What is the next step in your giving? As you heard earlier, we have a gift day today. This is a chance to give over and above our regular giving so that as a church we can reach out all the more to the most vulnerable people in our town. 
Do you know, when I see the amount of money that we give away together at these gift days, I'm always blown away by the generosity of this church. This is a wonderfully generous church, and it always has been. And I believe God is stirring us for more. Just look around you, those of you in the room, look around you for a moment at this building, at the the bricks and the roof and the lighting and the slightly stained carpet. This is all here because of the wonderful generosity of God and the faithfulness and generosity of God's people. To buy this building nearly 30 years ago, people in our church family put their homes on the line. Maybe you were part of that back then. That took faith. That took a personal confidence in the faithfulness of God. And over the years, we've seen hundreds of people come in here and encounter the love of Jesus. The Lord still has his hand on our church. Do you believe that? And he hasn't finished with us yet. And we're, we're reaching out. As you heard in that video that John shared earlier on, since we started working with Christians Against Poverty nine and a half years ago, we've seen 91 families go debt-free. Many of those people are now Christians. The Lord still has his hand on our church. He isn't done with us yet. John has set us a target of £65,000 for this gift day. My prayer is that we would go way beyond that target so we can reach out all the more. But here's the thing. We could exceed that total and still totally miss the point. We We could give to this gift day and not think about our finances again. Because Jesus wants more for us. He's inviting us. And that's all of us. However much or however little we have, he's inviting us on a great adventure of growing in our trust in him and experiencing the true joy of a lifetime of generosity. George Muller was a a Christian evangelist in the 1800s, a Victorian German man who God called to move to Bristol and to care for orphans. He lived an extraordinary life. He grew up by his own omission, a liar and a thief, but he encountered Jesus and everything changed. In 68 years of ministry, he never took a salary. He never asked anyone for money. He never took out a loan and he never went into debt. Instead, he trusted God to put it in people's hearts to send him what he needed. Now, I'm not suggesting that we move to that model of paying staff by the way, but he was a man who really trusted in God. And throughout his lifetime, George Muller built five homes for orphans. And throughout his lifetime, along with his wife, he cared for more than 10,000 orphans. Over his life, God gave him a lot of money. They think that by today's terms, it would be the equivalent of about 210 million pounds. The staggering thing is that he gave away what would be the equivalent of about 70 million pounds to other ministries around the world, a third of what God had given him. Towards the end of his life, he said about him and his wife, were we happy? Verily, we were. With every year, our happiness increased more and more. See, his was a life of simple reliance on God and joyful, gospel-driven generosity. So as we come into finish, how do we get to that kind of living? Well, we'll only do it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Tim Keller, the the brilliant Christian writer and theologian, now with Jesus in glory, he points out that in this story in Luke's gospel, actually, there's not just one rich young ruler. There are two. Because Jesus was a young man in his early 30s. He had the riches, the majesty of heaven. 
And he was the ultimate ruler. Colossians 1.16 says that in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the true king. He is the true ruler. And yet he gave himself up for us. And out of love, he came. And he lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And then on the cross, he poured out his life for us. The one who had everything made himself nothing. That is true generosity. And when we see the value of Jesus, when we think of the great debt that we had to God that we could never pay, and when we realize that Jesus paid it all and that nothing that we can do can ever add to our salvation, that is when we become truly generous people. See, the rich young ruler, in some ways, was so close to eternal life. He was so close that he could touch the Saviour. God was right there in front of him in the flesh. And yet this man was so focused on his wealth that he missed out on life in all its fullness. How incredibly sad. Church, don't stare at your stuff. Stare at Jesus. Treasure him. Enjoy him. Gaze at him. That is where true joy and generosity comes from. He stands in front of us today, needing nothing from us, but wanting everything for us. So let's be all the more a truly generous people, knowing that God has been truly generous to us. Amen? Amen. Thank you.